This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are going to discuss the midterm elections, which occurred uh, three weeks ago now, but uh, which seem like they will never go away. Uh, Just uh, this week, the week after Thanksgiving, we're seeing the certification of the results in Arizona, Michigan, and elsewhere, and of course, the Senate runoff in Georgia. And uh, we also see continued discussion about uh, the future makeup of the House of Representatives, the Senate, uh, and uh, all branches of U.S. government. We are fortunate to have with us today uh, one of the most interesting and insightful writers on American politics, uh, full stop, Uh, but particularly the politics of the Republican Party and its historical evolution over the last half century. Uh, this is our good friend and prior guest, uh, Jeff Caberservice. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Uh, great to be with you, Jeremy and Zachary. Jeffrey Caberservice is the Vice President of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center. He is the author of several books that I highly recommend uh, to all of our listeners, books that I often assign to students. Uh, So if I haven't assigned these books to you, uh, consider yourself now assigned. Um, (laughs) The Guardians, Kingman Brewster, His Circle, and the Rise of the Liberal Establishment, which is really a wonderful book. I remember uh, talking with Jeff as he was working on this as his dissertation, really captures uh, the promise and perils of what we might call moderate liberal republic in the 1960s in particular. Uh, Then uh, Jeff followed that up with another blockbuster book, Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. This was published in 2012 and really anticipated uh, further destruction of the Republican Party thereafter. Jeff has continued to write uh, in so many important venues, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. He has his own podcast that I was fortunate enough to appear on with the Wisconsin Center. Uh, And Jeff is very prominent in uh, all kinds of discussions uh, about American politics today and the the search for moderation, the search for centrism in our extremist politics. So we're very fortunate to have Jeff with us. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Mr. Cabot Service, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem, Zachary? My First Vote. 10, 24, 22. And, and you told me this is a sonnet, right? Yes, this is a sonnet. Okay, well, just explain to us maybe what a sonnet is before you start. Well, I, I hope everyone knows what a sonnet is, but uh, it's 14 lines, iambic pentameter, AB, AB, etc., uh, and uh, uh, a um, couplet at the end, um, or I guess volta <laughs> is often uh, the, the term I've heard used to describe the content, at least. But. Okay, okay, I think everyone had a sense of what a sonnet was, but no one quite had that detailed explanation <laughs> off the tip of their tongues in the way you did. <laughs> All right, let's hear it. Okay. When I walked in the booth, at first I thought I had discovered freedom at first breath, when all is hopeful but must first be fought for, paid in fortitude and early death. 
'Twas an illusion that I am quite sure, but for a fleeting second I could swear I tasted my tongue a red, white, blue blur of both the oceans in a single stare. I think it was the promise, then I heard, that promise to us never has come true, that flying forth for land has not returned, a dove thought missing in the endless blue. It didn't matter much, my vote was hurled, but then again, it mattered half the world. I love it, Zachary, almost Shakespearean. <laughs> what is your poem about? My poem is about um, the... It, the way in which my first vote cast in this midterm election, um, how how empowering it felt to finally have uh, the chance to to check that box uh, digitally here in Texas uh, um, on on my first ballot, uh, but also the ways in which uh, that experience to me and the election results which followed uh, exposed the limitations, the frustrations of voting and. And 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 the pathologies of 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 our of our democracy right now. So Jeff, I think that's a perfect place to to turn to your analysis of of the midterms. Um, Zachary was one of a, a number of young people who voted. Do you, to start us off, I mean, do you have a sense? Did did young people make a big difference in this election? Um, first of all, thank you for your poem, Zachary, uh, and congratulations on casting your first vote. Uh, I wish you many more. Um, you know, one of the problems with trying to figure out what has happened in a particular election is that we depend on exit polls, and exit polls are notoriously unreliable. And in particular, they overweight uh, the college-educated voters, and they also overweight young people. So although a lot of the early reports were that Generation Z came through and saved democracy, I, I think we just really don't know the answer to that in terms of whether the turnout was uh, bigger, smaller, about the same as it's been in past elections. And we probably won't know until more detailed results are available to us about six months hence. And, and so what do we know then with some certainty about about uh, the voting? I mean, it, it, there was high turnout for a midterm historically. Is that correct, Jeff? Uh, I'm not even sure about that, to be honest. Um, and I, I have a feeling that actually it probably will turn out to be not as high as um, some past elections we've had. But what is interesting about this midterm is that it's really a departure from a lot of historical patterns. And in particular, with Joe Biden's rating hovering near 40%, which is not very good, he's underwater, and has been actually ever since the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and the economy also not performing terribly well for a lot of people. You would have expected that the Democrats would have been shellacked. Um, I think the average loss for a president's party, particularly in his first term, is something like 28 seats in the House and one to two in the Senate in that first midterm election. And while the Democrats did lose uh, control of the House, and we're now waiting to see whether Kevin McCarthy will in fact be elected the new speaker, uh, they retained the Senate. And this is really a, an unusual result. And the Democrats have some cause to feel good about themselves. Um, but what's two things that really strike me as being particularly interesting about this election. First of all, on the subject of Zachary's poem, this was an election where a lot of races were determined by a relatively small number of votes. So although you know one can feel that one is just casting one's infinitesimal vote into a pool of 100 million and it doesn't count for anything, uh, in fact, a lot of differences were made in a lot of elections by a relative handful of votes. And the other thing is that 
it seems like this was in many ways a rejection of extremists uh, and a vote for more or less normal politicians, which is certainly uh, a good result compared to some of the ones we've had in the past. So say a little more about that, Jeff, because this is actually your métier, right, is understanding the the challenges of managing extremism or not managing it within uh, both parties, particularly the Republican Party. In what ways do you see extremists getting rejected at the ballot box in this last election? So as you uh, pointed out, Jeremy, in some of your introductory remarks, um, we really were anticipating a red wave in this election, and it turned into a, a red trickle at best. You're right. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, recriminations going on on the Republican side, uh, because this simply is not the results that they were expecting. Uh I think in the end, the margin of Republican control in the House will be something like eight votes, which I think is about the margins that the Democrats uh, have mostly enjoyed during this last uh, session of Congress. So this is not what they thought was going to be happening. If you go back three months, some Republicans were confidently predicting that they would have a result more like 2010, when the Democrats, I think, lost 63 votes in the House uh, in Obama's first term. So this was not that. And given all of the tensions and divisions within the Republican caucus, it's going to be very difficult for Kevin McCarthy to be an effective speaker. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, who's now retiring uh, as speaker, did manage uh, a more or less unified caucus with, again, a small number of votes to spare. But I think that's beyond Kevin McCarthy's talents and the makeup of the Republican Party. Uh, But on the other hand, it does not seem to me that this was really a resounding election uh, in favor of the Democrats either. Uh, And again, we'll know more when we have more detailed exit polls. But one statistic that I thought was just fascinating from the exit polls, which which does actually bear comparability, um, was that they usually ask uh, people coming out of the polling places, "Did you uh, do you strongly support uh, Joe Biden, the president? Do you somewhat support? Uh, do you somewhat disapprove, or do you strongly disapprove?" And in that category of strongly disapprove, um, most of the time in most elections, those people will vote against the party in power by thirty to forty percentage points. And in this election, they actually voted Democrat by five percentage points. Like this is an almost historically uh, unprecedented. Uh, uh, tally. So there's a lot of interesting things going on in this election, which we're going to be arguing about, as you say, for quite some time. Uh, That's really an insightful um, fact that you have from the uh, exit polling, that a large number of people who say they are dissatisfied with the president still voted for his party uh, in this election. How do you explain that, Jeff? You know, I think there is a lot of dissatisfaction with the Democrats, which is reflected in uh, Joe Biden's low approval ratings and also in the fact that Republicans nationally took the House vote, I want to say, by four to five percentage points. Uh, and these are the usual reasons that we've discussed, uh, the economy, inflation, um, lingering dissatisfaction perhaps with some of the Democrats' uh, COVID restrictions that were seemed to be excessive, uh, crime being a big dissatisfier, uh, the border being a big dissatisfier. There's there's a lot of things that have gone into that. Um, and yet, in a, so many contests, particularly in purple states, um, voters looked at the Republican and said, I just cannot vote for that person. Um, and again, if we're looking at a remarkable statistic, in all of the swing states where there was an election denier who was the Republican candidate for Secretary of State, every one of them went down to defeat 
Um, and in a lot of the swing states also, um, election denier Republican candidates lost races that they really, by rights, should have won. And I think that's one of the big takeaways for the Republican Party this election. And and in some ways, they even outperformed uh, the Democrats running against election deniers, outperformed other Democrats. So, for example, in Arizona, um, you have the attorney general, uh, Democratic candidate winning by, I think, four or five percent, whereas the um, actually, as a secretary of state candidate, excuse me, winning by four or five percent, whereas the attorney general candidate only won the Democrat by 500 votes, meaning that a much higher percentage of voters uh, voted against the election denier who was running for secretary of state. Right. Uh, and various people, including Phil Wallach at AEI and I want to say Nate Cohn, have calculated that there was a five percentage point disadvantage for election deniers uh, in this race, which is really quite something. But I think this also speaks to the fact that uh, the swing voter has not been rendered extinct, as many pundits uh, would have had us believe uh, in past elections. And I think that's a heartening thing, really. And so this is a concept, uh, Jeff, that you and I have meditated on as scholars. It's a it's a concept that was has been used by political scientists like David Mayhew for a long time. Uh, what what do we mean by a swing voter? Uh, you know, a swing voter is someone who can go between either party, depending on the appeal of the candidate uh, or their perception of how one party or the other is handling the matters that are important to them. Um, you know, the conventional wisdom for I would say the last two decades has been that there really are no swing voters that even voters who say they're independents or undecideds are really partisans when you get right down to it for one side or the other, and that's ultimately how they vote uh, in the polling place. But I, as I said, I think this election showed that that's not totally true, um, and also that independents in many cases are true independents, that their votes are up for grabs and that they need to be persuaded one way or maybe dissuaded the other way uh, by the arguments that the candidates are making. But as much as this election sort of, I think, has come down in many ways at the margins to to swing voters, so much of the story has been in places where we maybe wouldn't expect swing voters to play as large a role, uh, or, or where, sorry, where they played a lower or a lesser role than we would have expected in places like Michigan or Florida, where it seems we had landslides or large margins for incumbent governors. Uh, and then on the other hand, you had places like suburban New York City that 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 swung large for Republicans. How do we understand these sort of very odd, if you will, localized results? So um, these are difficult to understand. And again, I think we don't have the answers yet. Um, but there's a factor we haven't mentioned yet, which is the role of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade uh, in June of this year. And I'm sure that had an effect at the margins uh, in a number of races that tilted them to Democrats, which otherwise would have been Republican victories. Um, and I think you particularly saw that in states where abortion was on the ballot, so to speak. Um, and there were a number of states where there were initiatives and referendums on abortion. Um, and in every case, it was, uh, I suppose you would say, the, the pro-abortion right side that came out victorious. Uh, we even saw that in very conservative states like Kansas and Kentucky. Um, and also, this is a case in results uh, where the governor candidate or uh, the attorney general, perhaps, would have likely had some role in determining what kind of a, access to abortion there would be in the event that he or she won. And I think that really was very important in a state like Michigan. Uh, on the other hand, it wasn't up for grabs in New York, um, where abortion rights are secure. And therefore, voters perhaps felt freed to vote uh, on issues like crime, 
which seemed to be a determinative vote in a lot of particularly the suburban uh, New York elections on Long Island and elsewhere. Right, right. We're referring here to Suffolk and Nassau counties, and, and these are areas, bedroom communities of New York City that are generally assumed to be Democrat, where uh, in, I think, four or maybe even five uh, Republicans unseated Democrats in congressional races, enough probably to be the difference in control of the House of Representatives. And there's a lot of recriminations among Democrats that this is because Mario Cuomo, for his own political ends, uh, allowed the dis- determination of the of the borders of those districts to be set by a commission that might have leaned Republican. But that's right. a different subject. Right, right. That is. And I think you're referring to Andrew Cuomo, correct? Oh, Andrew Cuomo, sorry. Yes. So it's okay. You, one Cuomo to another. Oh, <laughs> those those of us who have lived in New York. <laughs> it's been a long reign of Cuomos. <laughs> yes. So, so, Jeff, what does this mean, uh, based on what we know so far, for the Republican Party? I mean, your your work shows so definitively how, um, really going back before Newt Gingrich, but from the time of Newt Gingrich forward, from uh, the 1990s forward, the extreme wing of the party has hijacked its its position in many elections and has has been relatively successful. This is a formula that that has worked for Gingrich and Trump and others. Um, is the party going to rethink this formula? Are we realistic to expect the party to come back to more moderate positions or uh, or, or not? Um my thoughts on this are very jumbled, Jeremy. So I'm going to give you and Zachary a pretty jumbled answer to this. Um, you know, one of the lessons that the Republican Party learned in the 1960s from Barry Goldwater's presidential candidacy in 1964 was that it's a mistake to have a candidate who excites the base too much. Because the only way you can actually gin that base up to a white hot peak of intensity is through extreme positions, which are also unpopular positions. Um, And Goldwater's wipeout in 1964 handed Lyndon Johnson and the Democrats the ability to pass what amounted to a second New Deal. And this was a very chastening experience for a lot of Republicans, including a lot of conservatives like Ronald Reagan. Um, And so when Ronald Reagan ran for governor in his own right in California in 1966 and then later for president, um, he actually ran as a big tent Republican. We tend to forget this given that there was so much lionization of Reagan as Mr. Conservative. Uh, But in fact, he always knew that the party over which he presided was actually fairly heterogeneous. And if it was going to win popular majorities, he needed to retain the moderates as well as the diehard ultra-conservatives. And so he purposely did not uh, fan his uh, followers up to that white-hot or even red-hot peak of intensity. Uh, And it's part of the secret of his success. Um, Whereas starting from Newt Gingrich onwards, the idea was that Republicans can only win if they're divisive, if they split the American population, and if they make their base hate the other's base. So in this sense, Gingrich is actually taking the advice of Pat Buchanan when he was advisor to President Richard Nixon, which is that if we tear the country in half, we'll end up with the bigger half. Um, and this is more or less the the approach that they've uh, followed ever since, which is described by uh, the political scientists as negative partisanship or affective polarization or what have you, uh, which is where you don't actually like your own party that much, but you sure do hate the other party. And you are determined to deny them any kind of victory, even if that means that your own party isn't really running on anything that's going to benefit you all that much. Uh, The only benefit that they have is owning the other party and fighting a culture war fight, which may not even affect your life that much. 
So this is the kind of empty back and forth politics that we've had a lot of uh, really since the 1990s with the arguable uh, interregnum of, of – uh, of George W. Bush. Um, but, you know, it basically is the sort of thing where one party wins a majority, the voters hate that party in power, they turn back to the other party, they hate that party, they turn back to the other one, since we only have two parties to choose from uh, in our system. Uh, and what neither party has done is actually establish itself as the consensus popular party. Um, that was the rule throughout most of American history. Uh, if you go back to the years following the Civil War, the Republican Party was the sun party. The Democrats were the moon party. Right. Um, and Republicans exercised enormous uh, popular majorities for most of that time, both at the level of the presidency and also uh, in Congress and even down to the level of most states' state houses. Uh, and then following the Great Depression and the New Deal, the Democrats became the sun party and the Republicans were the, the moon party, the out party. And the Republican Party particularly was shut out of a majority in the House for 40 years from uh, the 1950s through the 1990s. Um, so Newt Gingrich felt that in order to get the Republicans back into power, he really had to destroy public faith in Congress and institution. Uh, he pursued an absolute scorched earth approach that seemed to be effective. Um, but I think the question is, was it really as effective as all that? Because essentially it just launched us into this back and forth era of, of hatred, uh, mutual hatreds. And the Republican Party now, I think, in the wake of this election, has to ask itself whether the current champion of this approach of dividing the country, namely Donald Trump, is the kind of candidate and approach that they want going forwards, or whether they're better off actually trying to pose as a more normal party that might actually win sizable popular majorities of Americans. How within the Republican Party would the argument for a normal party be made? What should we be looking for to see to see that? It, it certainly doesn't seem to be Ron DeSantis's argument. Well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, DeSantis is making that argument, frankly, because he won in Florida by a margin of 19 plus points, uh, which is a big margin. Now, you can also say that Florida has been trending toward the Republicans um, and that Marco Rubio, who was the senatorial Republican candidate, also won by a big majority, I think 16 points, not quite 20, but still pretty impressive. And DeSantis's politics are pretty divisive, aren't they, Jeff? Yeah, DeSantis has always cast himself as sort of a mini Trump. Um, and if anything, you know, his stunt of flying Venezuelan asylum seekers in Texas to Martha's Vineyard um, is kind of a more demented and morally uh, deranged uh, version of Trumpism than Trump himself uh, right. seems to have managed in a while. Um, but what he's not doing really is trying to draw back upon any of what used to define the Republican Party uh, as the party of responsible stewardship. Uh, and a national party that draws together all people. He sometimes makes thrusts at that. So he actually seems to have been reasonably effective in his response to the recent Florida hurricanes. Uh, and he accepted Joe Biden's visit to the state. He didn't try to score points off that. Um, he has tried to be a competent governor in terms of rebuilding certain critical bridges uh, and infrastructure that were destroyed by the storms. Uh, and that's what really excites the uh, the belief on many of the relatively moderate parts of the Republican Party, that this can be someone who can deliver Trumpism without Trump, uh, who can actually bridge the gap between the business-oriented wing of the party that just wants competency in government versus the Trump-oriented wing of the party that wants populism and owning of the libs. 
where DeSantis does, again, sort of seem to suggest a model for the Republican way forward uh, is that he performed quite well among Hispanics in Florida. And I think he's the first uh, Republican governor in 20 years, at least, to actually win a majority of Miami-Dade County, uh, which is heavily Hispanic. Um, and there's this feeling that the Republicans are becoming the party of the working class and that this is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial working class. And since there are more working class people and lower middle class people in the United States than college educated professionals, that this is the way forward for the Republican Party to become a popular majority party again. Is there a pathway for someone like Maryland Governor Larry Hogan? Um who, who who claims to be more of a traditional uh, Republican moderate on many so- social and cultural issues in particular. Or Chris Sununu in, in New Hampshire. Right. Yeah. You know, I like Larry Hogan. I like Chris Sununu. Um, and, you know, I think it's pretty significant that the Republican parties in both Massachusetts, where Charlie Baker was a popular Republican governor, and in Maryland, where Larry Hogan was a popular Republican governor, chose to go with their hearts and elect super Trumpy Republican nominees over the more moderate uh, alternatives and lost. So they basically right. just gave up two states to the Democrats because they weren't even willing to compromise by uh, nominating a more traditional Republican, a more traditional conservative like Hogan uh, or Charlie Baker. Um, so, you know, I don't really think that there's an easy path, maybe a path at all for Larry Hogan to get the nomination of the Republican Party. But I'm not sure there's even a path for Ron DeSantis to get the nomination uh, of the Republican Party either in 2024. And the reason is that Trump, as we know, has declared that he is a presidential candidate. Um, The party elites and the party establishment think he's a loser. They're coming out against him. You're starting to see more and more people saying that. But the base still seems to be with him, or at least a really hardcore 30% of the base, because again, he's a Goldwater figure in the sense that he has delivered that base, the kind of uh, just absolute over-the-top extremism and culture wars that thrills them. And they might not want to turn to somebody else. And it's not clear that a Ron DeSantis can deliver them what they want. And it's also not clear that in a Republican primaries, that if Trump has that 30%, if there's anyone who could stop him, particularly if there's you know 12 other candidates running or 15 other candidates as there were in 2016. And if he can get um, the My Pillow guy, uh, Mike Lindell, <laughs> a- elected as the head of the Republican Party, which he seems to be trying to do. Yeah, um, that probably isn't going to happen, but never say never. <laughs> so, so Jeff, I think this this discussion leads us to the the core question for for this podcast and for every episode. Uh, how should we understand our democracy today? Then, if if we're hearing from you very persuasively that this midterm election signifies uh, that our divisions are quite solid, unfortunately, that they're not going away, that there are swing voters, but nonetheless. We're a deeply divided country and that the extremes within the Republican Party in particular are likely to hold on and likely to still dominate the party going forward, that this is not going to go back to the Republican Party of Mitt Romney or even Ronald Reagan. Um, How should we understand where our democracy is? How should we understand what the possibilities are for productive policymaking and productive politics of any kind in this environment? Well, I'm usually the most pessimistic person in the room, Jeremy. Um, 
But at this particular moment, at least, I'm not actually feeling quite as pessimistic as the scenario that you laid out. Because I do think that it is significant that this is the third successive defeat that the Republican Party has suffered following uh, the leadership of Trump and the approach of Trump, uh, the approach of divisive culture war, uh, endless kind of grievance. Uh, Because after all, they suffered big losses in the House in 2018. Uh, They lost the presidency as well in 2020. And here they've lost, or at least underperformed, uh, again in 2022. So, you know, repeated defeat actually will teach a party that something new is needed. And I actually continue to feel that the American people as a whole uh, are actually still somewhere in the middle and that there actually are genuine popular majorities waiting for whichever party can actually moderate it itself to the extent that it can actually seize them. If it can actually uh, minimize the kind of drawbacks of their intense but unpopular bases and extreme wings. And you know, it's all very well for me, I'm not a politician, it's all very well made for me to say that. That would take a politician of genius to accomplish this. But I think you know, part of the American genius is that we do surface such people from time to time. Um, and so certainly on the Republican side, I can tell you that there probably are majorities available to the Republican candidate who can say, we need to balance the budget, but it has to be equally shared sacrifice. Um, we need to maintain a, a strong global order, which includes uh, a role for global trade, but one in which the benefits of trade are more equitably divided than they have been so far. Uh, We understand that we are a federal uh, nation, that there will be states where abortion will be not available, but most American people seem to believe uh, that they want abortion available in the first trimester, but with restrictions thereafter, and that might be the approach we pursue. Uh, And you can kind of go through the lists here, you know, where the extreme position, which is embraced certainly by the Republican side, to some extent by the Democratic side, is not the popular position. And it actually might be possible to achieve popular majorities through taking the more um, moderate path. Um, But again, that's easy for me to prescribe, much more difficult for an actual politician to accomplish in practice. It sounds like you're asking for a Republican Bill Clinton. Uh, You know, I think what I'm asking for is a Republican equivalent of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was what happened on the Democratic side after they'd suffered repeated defeats in the wake of George McGovern's uh, nomination for the Democratic uh, presidential candidate in 1972. And it eventually required the leadership of Clinton and particularly some other governors, particularly a lot of Southern governors, uh, to sort of turn around the perception of the Democratic Party uh, and to make the American people feel that, in fact, it was the Democratic Party that was closer to the mainstream than the Republicans, um, and that all the stuff they were hearing about the extremes was not representative of where the party really was. And I think that's something that needs to be done on the Republican side. Whether it can be done, that I'm not so sure about. I did want to ask you your thoughts on uh, the, albeit fragmented, Democratic agenda that seems to be uh, out there, uh, the the sort of, if you will, unity agenda that Biden tried to run on in 2020, because a lot of what he's saying about there still being swing voters and uh, there being this, this middle path seems to have been proven true, at least in your mind, in this election. Do you see that as a long lasting winning strategy for the Democrats? So that's a really perceptive question, Zachary. And since I'm not a Democrat, I'm not sure that I know the answer or that anyone should accept the answer that I have. Uh, I think Biden got the nomination because he was the most moderate Democrat running. Um, And he got 
really sort of the kingmaker nod from Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, who's also, I think, a, a moderate on the whole. Um, I think he has not consistently governed as a moderate. And in particular, the Democrats took a while to realize that, in fact, uh, there was no way for the progressives to coerce the rest of the party into adopting their positions just because the base happened to believe in them strongly. That, in fact, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema exercised a veto and that they had no choice if they wanted to pass anything but to work together. And I think Nancy Pelosi also understood that very strongly. And that ultimately is why you did have the Inflation Reduction Act passed and a number of other fairly significant acts of legislation, some of which actually passed uh, with Republican support, at least some Republican support. Right. Uh, I right. think that's probably the way forward, at least for the Democrats, maybe for the Republicans too, this negotiation among shifting ad hoc factions of deal makers on both the center left and the center right. Um, but that's uncongenial for people further out, uh, the true believers, if you will. For the time being, they seem to be accepting Joe Biden in this role uh, of someone who uh, may give sympathetic voice to the progressives, but ultimately whose feelings are with the dealmakers. Um, uh, but I don't know. Uh, hard to say whether they can sustain that approach or if the Republicans can do better. Mm. So uh, final question, Jeff, and the one we always like to close on, what should our listeners who agree with much of what you've said, who believe in um, centrism, pragmatism, it doesn't mean they aren't progressives or conservatives, but at, in, in spite of those proclivities on certain issues, still also believe in getting legislation through and uh, basic functioning of government and democracy, uh, what should they be doing? What what role should they play in their communities as political actors, young voters like Zachary? How should they be trying to encourage uh, movement toward the center? Um, you know, I think that there's two kinds of moderation that are out there, uh, and they are very different, and it's important to distinguish between them. One is the kind that just says, okay, you say 10, I say zero, therefore the answer is five. Uh, that's not really satisfying to anyone, and it's not actually a real viable political program either. Um, I think I'd actually like to bring this discussion back to something which is really more in your field, Jeremy, uh, because I heard you talk at the American Enterprise Institute to a somewhat skeptical audience of conservatives <laughs> who were all up in arms about critical racial theory and uh, the 1619 Project and, and things like that, and were wondering whether your wonderful new book, uh, Civil War uh, by Other Means, was maybe siding with uh, the progressives. Um, you know, I think there's actually a lot of room out there for a history which is neither, uh, which is not, which isn't beholden to either extreme. Yes. Which isn't either the 1619 Project or the execrable uh, 1776 Commission report, which in its own ways is, is is even more of a distortion of American history. I think the American people can be trusted with honesty. You know, we are a great nation who've accomplished amazing things. Uh, we are an exceptional nation, and we have atrocities in our past. And we have to hold both of those thoughts in mind. We have to be proud of our country while understanding that there have been some terrible legacies which continue to the present day. And I think your book strikes that balance. And it's hard to find balance, uh, you know, much as it is hard to walk across a tightrope. Um, but it's that kind of balance which we have to seek. And that means being open-minded. And that means listening to what people have to say on both sides. And it means arriving at some of your own independent decisions. And it means ultimately trying to figure out who you trust and then giving your trust to the people who deserve that trust. 
So that's the kind of approach that I'd like to see us all take. I, I, I think that's beautifully stated. And thank you for your, your kind words about my book. But I, I, I think you you really, you capture a, a vision of what we might call um, deliberative politics, right? Which is sort of really focused on trying to understand and deal with a balance of good and bad and and bring those issues together in a way that's productive rather than choosing sides. Deliberative politics is exactly what I'd like to see more of. That's fantastic. Uh, Zachary, what do you think? Is that possible? Are, are, are Jeff and I being too pie in the sky? Are we sounding like, <laughs> like historians in a, in a messy political world that we don't understand? I would hope it's possible. I think if, if, if the Trump era showed up, or we're not really through with the Trump era, maybe, but if the Trump presidency, or uh, the, the the Trump administration showed us one thing: it's the dangers of of incompetent government. And I would hope that young people like myself, who are voting for the first time uh, in these elections, uh, have a renewed sense of the importance of competent government uh, and of practical government, uh, as well as a practical politics. But I do think that there's there's um, I, I think that there are some institutional challenges that our country faces. Uh, and uh, that I think in some ways were reflected in the turnout uh, and the election uh, that we just discussed uh, that, that need to be addressed, that can't necessarily be addressed through, through, the, through one party or the other. And I think some of those institutional challenges are, are legacies that, that no one necessarily thinks are appropriate, but right. no one knows how to change. I mean, ele- the Electoral College being one example right. of that, right, Zachary? Right. I think, I think in, in some ways they're more constitutional uh, than they are uh, partisan. Right, right, but they don't. It's it's not as if people want to affirm those institutional practices. There's just no agreement on what to do in place of them, so exactly. we simply stick with them. Right. Uh, and that that's a kind of uh, sort of Damocles hanging hanging over us. Jeff, any thoughts on that? You know, uh, I think there is no doubt that the electoral college never functioned in the way that uh, the framers intended it, uh, and further that they simply didn't foresee uh, a lot of the things that continue to warp and divide us uh, both in politics and as a nation. Uh, in particular, the sort of uh, complete monopolization almost uh, of rural voters, uh, voters in left behind post-industrial towns by the Republican Party, right. and the equivalent uh, monopolization of urban dwelling voters, and increasingly the college educated uh, by the Democratic Party. Right. Uh, and I think that there needs to be, on the one hand, more outreach by the one party to uh, the people who don't support it, uh, that in fact, Democrats need to care just as much about the plight of uh, victims of the opioid epidemic out there in the red states as Republicans need to care about the victims of gun violence uh, in blue cities. Yes. Um, but again, that's going to be uh, a challenge for both parties, which really at this point uh, are just so much better rewarded in their primaries and even to some extent uh, when they lose elections by playing to the base rather than trying to actually unite us as a country. Right, right. No, I think that's very well said, Jeff. I, I think, though, you have pointed to us uh, how we can see uh, a, a a real possibility for deliberative politics despite these difficulties and challenges uh, in this midterm election because, uh, as you said already, um, there's so much evidence that many voters made intelligent, thoughtful, well-informed decisions. Uh, not voting for election deniers. Clearly, most of the voters in many areas 
recognize that the election deniers were wrong, whether those voters were Democrats or Republicans. And that seems to have driven things. And that provides a basis for some factual deliberative politics, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think a lot of voters uh, cast votes that had real personal costs to themselves, um, that they might really have preferred the other party, but couldn't stomach the candidate. Um, And I think that's actually a sign of responsible citizenship. And I think that's a perfect note to close on, because our podcast each week is built around the notion that historical perspective can provide us with uh, not only a basis for understanding deliberative politics, uh, but also some hope in building more deliberative politics. And as the inspiration for our podcast, uh, Franklin Roosevelt himself, in another time of deep partisanship, economic challenge, and uh, international challenge as well, uh, articulated a vision of American politics where each generation would write a new chapter, not fighting the old battles, but finding new uh, areas of agreement, not on all issues, but on issues that could move the country forward for economic reconstruction, for international security, uh, and many related topics. And uh, insofar as our podcast is inspired by Franklin Roosevelt, I think we've had actually a very Rooseveltian discussion. Uh, <laughs> maybe not exactly, Jeff, what you would have expected, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think, I think uh, Jeff, you've really laid out uh, a vision for us uh, that we can see emerging, we hope, uh, from this midterm election. I, I want to encourage all of our listeners again to follow uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kappaservice uh, and to follow his his work, read his books. Uh, I think this podcast has clearly shown how understanding the history of the Republican Party and American electoral politics uh, provides us with, with real leverage for thinking about the, the difficult politics of our own time. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights with us. Uh, Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Zachary. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. And Zachary, thank you for your uh, thoughtful sonnet this week. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.